0: welcome to the health design podcast i am your host Moya's jiwa my guest on the podcast today is a canadian lady who says that if we improve the care of a minority in the population that we may well find that we improve the care for all people in whatever country we happen to live in she also makes the point that good health care isn't about new technologies it is about the care of people in terms of their fundamental needs for human connection. My guest today is Denise McQuaig. Well, you're very welcome to the show, Denise. I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land from which I'm coming to you today. That's the Wurundjeri people, of the Kulin Nation, and their leaders past, present, and future. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be coming in to you from Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada the traditional territory of the Sequoia people.
0: Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, because those of us who work on this side of the pond know very little about the Aboriginal people of Canada. So tell us about that. Tell us about your background.
1: I'm a member of the Indigenous community, the Métis Nation. Métis is a French mixed blood. So we were the coming together of First Nations and European settlers. And as a result of that, we formed our own language, our own culture that was very specifically Aboriginal in its origins. We were recognized formally in the Constitution of Canada in 1985 as one of three distinct Aboriginal groups, along with the First Nations and the Inuit people. So I'm very proud to be a Métis woman and, of course, Indigenous has had a huge impact on my interest in health care and, and my journey into health.
0: Tell us about Denise the person now. Tell us about how you ended up having an interest in health care.
1: I think the main reason is probably what motivates most people and that was the impact of ill health on my family. So we dealt with heart disease, diabetes, cancer, mental illness, addiction and when you look at the indigenous community all of those things are threefold, fourfold, tenfold greater than the rest of the population. Then in my early 20s, I myself was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I became very motivated to have, try and figure out a way to, to balance life and reduce the stigma related to, to mental illness that so many of my family had been burdened by. And that was my, my main motivation was to really see change in my community for a positive direction and so it got me mostly interested in health policy work and so most of my work has been managerial and involved with uh, building relationships with government to try and influence policies in the system that would help make access and care for Indigenous people be uh, easier and more uh, appropriate.
0: So in the context of Canada, what are the challenges that you see from the perspective of policy for healthcare, particularly as they relate to indigenous people?
1: I think the biggest challenge is that the system is really designed to meet the needs of the majority of the population who are accessing the service. So often those who are over sixty five years of age, who are white, Anglo Saxon, and the system is simply designed to respond to those needs and So we see a movement towards equal services and not necessarily equitable services. So when I look to equity, I look for a service that's going to meet the patient where they're at with what they need, which works in their lifestyle and not necessarily just getting what service Joe got because I have a right to have equal service, but I need equitable service. And policies and services are not designed that way in our, in our health system.
0: I like that term, equitable service. So supposing that you are a young person with diabetes and you're then brought into a system that's designed for, as you say, a 65-year-old white person in living in the suburbs uh, somewhere in Canada, how does the system fail you?
1: Well, it doesn't take into consideration the level of poverty that I might be experiencing in terms of food sovereignty. It doesn't take into consideration if I'm living off the land and a more traditional lifestyle for food access. You know, it doesn't take into consideration my level of literacy or even my learning style. So I would probably be referred to a diabetic education clinic where most of the people around me would not look like me, would not act or behave like me, and would not be living under those same circumstances. So we find that it becomes an uncomfortable fit, and many Indigenous young people simply drop out of the process. And so they're left without any access to diabetes education or any guidance on how to maneuver their nutritional needs through poverty.
0: And what are the consequences of that?
1: Well, we see, of course, higher levels of amputation, more kidney failure and dialysis. We see dialysis patients being disconnected from their families completely because they don't have potable drinking water. And so home dialysis is not an option. So we take them far from their communities into those suburban environments and attempt to have them live there in order to receive their dialysis so there's a lot of complications that could occur as a result of not meeting their needs up front at the time of diagnosis
0: has there been progress in terms of a movement towards more equitable care
1: yes i would say there has in that what they've done is they've begun to invest in the indigenous communities themselves and they've begun to build the infrastructure for them to be able to design and deliver the kinds of services that they need. So, you know, we see even Health Canada at a national level creating a health food guide that takes into consideration Indigenous diet as an example.
0: So there's a push and a pull, a push in terms of improving the services, but a pull in terms of requesting better services and pivoting towards the, the need for those services. From the Indigenous populations themselves, are you seeing any movement in terms of addressing these issues or is there a feeling that it's something that needs to be fixed by somebody else?
1: No, I think that they're feeling very empowered to begin to address it on their own. We're seeing a a big movement in that direction. And uh, I think the fact that we're starting to see the government sort of loosen the strings a little bit to allow that to unfold in our communities, is empowering people to feel more comfortable in accessing the service.
0: Where do you think it will be in the next 10 years? I mean, the picture that you've painted is very, very similar to the picture for Aboriginal people, Indigenous people here in Australia. We see exactly the same level of inequity in terms of the outcomes for major diseases, whether that's cancer, diabetes, heart disease, you name it mental health, addictions, all of those things, the outcomes are much, much poorer in those communities. In terms of the prospects for the future in the next 10 years, where do you think we're going to be from the Canadian perspective?
1: I'm hoping it'll be twofold. I think one of the things we're going to see is we're going to see more Indigenous people educated in health service delivery. So we'll have more Indigenous nurses, more Indigenous doctors, more Indigenous care aides. And I think that that's going to really help to make a system more responsive to the Indigenous population's needs. The other thing that's happening is that there's a huge investment by the mainstream system into cultural safety and reconciliation. And so as more and more health service providers become educated on our lived experience and our history as Indigenous Canadians, they become more empathetic. I think, to what it is that we're presenting with. And they begin to ask questions that I hope are based on our strengths and our resiliency and not always focused on our deficits.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? That the community has within itself the scope to improve its own well-being. If it's allowed to express itself in the way that it wishes to express itself and the life that it it wishes to lead, If you think about it, I love the word cultural safety because that's an important word. Whilst we wait for policy to change and pivot and improve outcomes at a macro level, at a micro level, when you go to see a doctor in Canada and you happen to come from another background, whether that's Indigenous or from another uh, minority group, can we introduce mechanisms that allow that doctor to respond to that patient in a way that is going to be culturally appropriate and takes into account the background of that patient. Talk a little bit about that. I'm sure that's an area that you've done a lot of work in.
1: It is. I I think the challenge is that up until recently within our systems of education, whether that's at the higher level of university and academia or at the lower levels of uh, preschool through to uh, high, ending high school, there hasn't been an opportunity in our educational system to learn about the history of Indigenous Canadians. And there certainly hasn't been history written from the perspective of lived experience. And so that's just starting to take place now where we can tell our stories of how we've been impacted by colonization, how we've been impacted by the residential school system, How we continue to be impacted by legislation such as the Indian Act that uh, is oppressive, continues to perpetuate colonial policies and and legislation. And so as the average Canadian and those in delivering healthcare learn about that, they can begin to understand how it impacts the way in which we communicate, our self-esteem, our ability to advocate for ourselves on our personal wellness journey. And they can be not only more empathetic, but they can be allies in our healthcare. I always look at people in my circle of healthcare providers as my wellness team. And so I'm the expert as the patient. I know my pain. I know my uh, situation at home and I know who my support networks are. So I'm the expert and everyone else is a consultant to my vision of wellness. And I think that a lot of people in the mainstream don't think of it that way. You know, they they think of the person in the white coat as being the expert. And I think we bring a different perspective to that process.
0: So when the rubber hits the road, and an Indigenous person makes an appointment to see a family doctor, let's say, and they've had a diagnosis of mental illness or they've had a diagnosis of diabetes. Where do you start in that encounter? So, you've got two people in a room and they are beginning that conversation. How would you begin that conversation with an Indigenous person?
1: Well, from my perspective, you'd want to begin it from a place of strength. So, I think historically, if I was to go into the, say, psychiatrist's office presenting with issues of bipolar, he's immediately going to tend to ask me about my sleep patterns, my mood swings. You know, he immediately goes to assessing the deficits. If you're doing that from an Indigenous perspective, you want to take a strengths-based approach first. And so what's most important to report about the patient in that instance is what gives you hope, where is your place of belonging, what gives you purpose, and what brings meaning to your life. And when those four questions are asked, then your psychiatrist, your specialist, can begin to build a scenario of care and intervention from knowing what your strengths are. Then, then the deficits become relevant, um, and it doesn't become a, a transactional relationship about medication, but more one of treating the whole person.
0: That makes so much sense in so many ways. And it also makes sense in terms of dealing with anybody who comes into primary care care where you're asking about the context in which this person is presenting a particular illness, not just the technical side of that. The challenge, of course, is that we are time poor in healthcare. We have very short time in order to achieve these outcomes. Is that the situation that you face or is there hope in another direction?
1: Absolutely, especially in a family physician setting where you're allotted a 10 minutes uh, appointment. And often the physician will say to you that we can only deal with one thing today. So if you have a, a bad knee, we can talk about that, but we can't talk about your blood pressure. You'll have to make another appointment to talk about your blood pressure. It's, it's very, <laughs> it's very challenging, but that's why I like the idea of that movement towards primary care models that are integrated. So, that you have access to a number of experts, and then they have the opportunity to case conference and perhaps get a better picture of the patient than what the physician can get in the 10 minute interaction that they're allotted.
0: In your setting, do patients register with a particular family doctor or can they go and see anyone they like?
1: They register with a particular physician, and physicians are getting more particular about who they bring into their practice based on the constraints of those time slots that they have. So there are many people who are without physicians who rely on walk-in clinics that are designed to simply assess the deficit, treat, and move the patient on, and they don't necessarily have a consistent physician that they see on a regular basis in their
0: life. So in terms of the policy change that you are Championing, is this one of the areas in which you would like to see some change? And what would that look like?
1: I think it would look like more nurse practitioners being able to have a larger scope of practice for nursing that uh, reduces the burden on the physician and patient relationship. I think that's really important. I think alternative medicines and the acceptance of them as being important to the patient is also something that we really are looking for in the Indigenous community, especially when it comes to things like our medicine people and our traditional medicines, uh, access to cultural and spiritual supports. So, yeah, any policies that would open the door for more alternative medicines and for a greater scope of practice from other health professions, I think would serve us well.
0: You must have stories about how this is unfolding, both good and not so good. Our listeners love to hear stories. Do you have a story of a particular patient encounter that really illustrates the points that we're making?
1: I do, actually, and it's a very personal one. I recently lost my father to complications from a stroke. His stay in hospital from the time that he had his stroke until he passed was a period of eight days. And he had been of ill health for a while, so he was very clear with us as a family about his end of life wishes. And he made it very clear that he didn't want any interventions that would prolong his life um, if the if his definition of quality of life was not going to be able to be met. But having said that, during this time of of COVID, uh, it, it became really challenging. To have those conversations with the health professionals that were providing his care, how would I begin to describe it? He had paralysis as a result of his stroke, and so he was having challenges with swallowing. And even the thickened broths that they gave him, he was having choking on on trying to get that food down. And he is asphyxiated, so he ended up with you know chicken broth in his lungs, yeah, which creates asphyxiated pneumonia. And so they contacted us about how we wanted to treat the pneumonia. And you feel pressured to make a decision immediately upon being asked. And there's no opportunity to have a family conference to process your grief and your emotions about the response that you know you're going to give. Because those were his wishes and we knew what our response would be. But we weren't prepared for the grief and the emotions that came with feeling like we were contributing to his demise. And there was no period of time allotted by the healthcare provider for processing those things. So you get a call from the charge nurse at the hospital or you're having a conversation with the physician and you feel like they're looking for an immediate response. And they're looking for that response from the next of kin, which was my mother, who's also elderly. So there's no accommodating for family conferencing or, you know, can I call you back in half an hour or, you know, it's just very transactional. It's not relational. It's transactional in in its, in its interaction. And so that was really challenging. And so then from not being able to get to saying no to giving him antibiotics, then the next question is about a feeding tube. So then you have to make a decision about that. Um, will you provide him any nutritional value? The answer to that is no. That's another prolonging life intervention. Then the pneumonia becomes worse. So will you give him assistance for breathing? You know, again, the answer based on his wishes is no. But through all of that, you're also more concerned about the human side of his care. So who's swabbing and giving him moisture in his mouth if he can't swallow? Who's putting chapstick on his lips? Who's identifying that he has pain breakthrough and getting him some pain management medication? Because you're not able to be there at the bedside. And you're not, you know, those are all things that as caregivers and family, we provide uh, that a very important aspect of health care. We provide that health care. And if we're not present, who's doing those things? And so never once in the interactions with the healthcare providers did they stop to tell us about those moments of care. And yet those were the things that weighed the heaviest on us as a family. And so it would have been nice if we could have spoken to the nurse or the care aide that was at his bedside. And they could have provided us with feedback about that kind of care being provided to him as opposed to just the biomedical interventions that they were providing. So it was filled, I think, with a greater level of sorrow and grief than it needed to be because we didn't take the time as a health system and as healthcare professionals to provide the family with the kind of information and the kind of time and space that they needed to maneuver through through their grief and their fears and i think that we created a, another level of trauma for the family that didn't need to exist
0: i'm so sorry that that happened to your father he deserved better you deserve better and may he rest in peace thank you can you think of an occasion when you think the system might have got it right and what that was like
1: oh i certainly can so i was Past director of Aboriginal Health for a very large regional health authority here in the interior of BC. And I've had the opportunity to be at the bedsides of many Aboriginal patients. And uh, I think about one case in particular a 24 year old Indigenous man who was a paraplegic who already had feeding tube but was in with pneumonia and was having a discussion with the family about uh, a tracheotomy. And whether they would be able to care for him after that procedure was, was done. Unfortunately, his, his pneumonia and his health took a greater turn for the worse. And he ended up with multiple organ failure and they never did proceed with that tracheotomy. But that was a, a healthcare team where I actually saw them allow the family to have the time and space to make some decisions and they were able to seek spiritual counsel. They were able to phone family that was hundreds of miles away and and have a discussion about their decision and what they were going to do. They wheeled the bed to the spiritual center in the hospital, to the chapel, where they were able to drum and sing for his spirit. And then at the time of his passing, instead of those that were in the hospital caring for his body, they allowed the family to sit with him and wait for the home care nurse to travel the many hours from his home community to be at his bedside, and it was her who removed his intravenous, his feeding tube, bathed him, and supported the family to say goodbye. And so, to me, that was a model of how it was done right, how it was done with the family and the the patients emotional, mental, and spiritual needs taken into consideration. And they didn't make it about bed space. They didn't make it about, you know, life and death, but they they allowed for something very beautiful to unfold. And I, I have a few stories like that, but not enough to feel that the system is yet fully responsive to our needs.
0: I think you make a, a very good point. Listening to you telling those stories, it occurred to me that there are many people who are not Indigenous, who are not Aboriginal, who resonate with the experiences that you describe, and they're thinking to themselves, this would work for me as much as it might work for somebody from another culture. And the point about it is this, when we get it right for Indigenous peoples, whether that's in Australia, whether that's in Canada, whether that's in the U.S., wherever it is, when we get it right for that group, we get it right for everybody.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think a a health system that responds to the whole being, as opposed to just the medical, biological needs uh, of the patient is going to be phenomenal for everyone.
0: I think the point is that if we focus on a group that is easily identified and we can say that here's people whose needs we're going to meet. We pivot and we can change the experience of healthcare for everybody. And that's why the work that you do, Denise McQuaig, is so very important. And we are so grateful that you're doing that work in Canada. And there are so many people in Australia doing similar things. Thank you so much for joining me on this conversation.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.